Hello there, I'm Brian Taylor. Down the years you may have seen me on the telly or heard me on the wireless, but this is different. This is the Brian Taylor podcast brought to you by The Herald. Today. This has been a really traumatising experience for thousands of frontline public sector workers. And I'm very sad to say that actually low pay across these workforces have been most essential in looking after the rest of us is endemic. I don't think we can continue to say, what if another variant comes down the road? We better keep everything closed. You, you, you can't live like that. The level of support has to be there to make sure that people are able to continue to have their businesses, continue to be employed into the the future. And furlough should be extended for as long as it's necessary. Well, there I'm Brian Taylor and a very warm welcome to my Herald podcast. Now, a bit of a change this week. We're going out live, although you'll also still be able to catch up later, whatever works for you. This week on the, the show, Will It Ever End? I'm not talking about Scotland's trials and tribulations in international football, although we will get to that hopefully with an upbeat tone, an upbeat note. Rather, I'm referring to the pandemic and to the prolonged constraints on all of us. Will it ever end? question a lot of folk are asking. The question, certainly the hospitality industry is asking their warning of another lost summer with an impact upon trade, an impact upon jobs and other businesses say too that they're at breaking point. What's your take? Do you do you back the, the cautious approach? Is that necessary or are you sick, fed up of the entire thing? Let's chat with my guests today. I'm delighted to welcome the SNP MP, Drew Henry, Ros Foyer, the General Secretary of the Scottish TUC, Andy McKeever from the consultancy group Mesh's Message Matters, and my Herald colleague, Asa Grant. Thanks very much to you for all joining me. Pandemic constraint, first of all. Ros Foyer, um, let's let's go with you. I mean, Nicola Sturgeon announcing we had the Prime Minister announcing an extension of the, the it was hoped to be Freedom Day. Nicola Sturgeon said she'd never used that sort of language, but in either way, the message from the two leaders is it's yet further constraint. Is that necessary? It must be causing a lot of worry to a lot of employees and a lot of folk in jobs. Well, I think the key point to be made here is that compromising on safety is a false economy. So. I actually welcome the cautious approach. I think it's a lack of caution, perhaps, on travel restrictions and other areas that's actually got into this mess with the extended need uh, for uh, restrictions. And, you know, the last thing we need is to... uh, There are new strains of the virus coming in all the time. They will find ways of getting around vaccines. They will become more aggressive, the strains that come in. And so we have to give time to get the population fully vaccinated uh, before we loosen constraints too early. I think the key point is that while constraints are necessary, what is also necessary is providing full and adequate support for Uh employers and employees to be able Uh to follow those restrictions. And do you believe that is being done at the present moment or is it falling shy? That is where we're falling shy. That's where the real problem lies in protecting our economy. So, you know, while we've got the the worst statutory sick pay uh, across almost the whole developed world. We have a problem with containing this pandemic. And while we're not offering support to business to the the required levels, we have a problem. And also, uh, we have to make sure that we're now extending the furlough. If we're extending the the restrictions, we have to take that furlough right through to the end of the year because at the end of this month, people's jobs will start getting cancelled because 
of the withdrawal of the furlough scheme beginning. So we are in a really dire straits. We need government to extend the furlough and do it now and send some clear messaging around that. Thanks for that. Annie McKeever, you, you, you take the, the pulse, the temperature of the business sector. I mentioned earlier, Scottish Licensed Trade Association saying that at breaking point, that, that's a common message, isn't it, from a number of business sectors? Absolutely. Uh, and obviously, over the last couple of weeks, a lot of the hospitality sector in particular is highlighting what they see as the double standard of having the fan zone open at Glasgow Green and having 6,000 people there, but not having their restaurant open, for instance. I think that, broadly speaking, I mean, I don't think any of them want to go backwards. So I don't think it's a case of throwing caution to the wind necessarily, but I think it's about understanding. And one of the things that I think government's not been good at, north and south of the border, I think the government have dealt with this basically pretty well. Their styles have been very different. Their communications have been very different. There's no question about that. But I think both governments deserve a lot of credit for dealing with a situation which nobody could really foresee. And although there's been a little bit of chaos, and I think that you would see that everywhere in the world. So I'm, I'm not really a critic of how the government have dealt with it. One thing I would like to see from the government is more of an analysis over when the cure is worse than the disease. So when are we at the point where lockdown is actually more dangerous than the virus? And that's where the vaccine comes into it, you know, because... At the end, we are at the point now where groups one to nine, uh, everybody over 50, has been double vaccinated or is very close uh, to that point. Anyway, I've yeah, been or has had the opportunity, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're at the point now where we're saying that actually those who are at risk of illness from this have been vaccinated. And that makes things materially different. So I understand why businesses are becoming increasingly frustrated with the situation because they see a situation where the risk is low. We're being yeah. told by people like Chris Whitty that we now have to live with this. And I don't think we can continue to say, what if another variant comes down the road? We better keep everything closed. You, you, you can't live like that. There comes a point so where you, you, you think, you think the you think the, the emergency provisions were okay, for were, were essential for an actual emergency, but now we are into the live with it, a phrase that Nicola Sturgeon says she doesn't like, incidentally, but I understand why, yeah, because but, she's but, you know, using the word live when so many people have actually died. But but, but, sure. but that is, live with it, deal with it, cope with it, carry on with it, coexist with it, whatever. But you, you're saying we need to maybe move on a bit from, from that. Well, yes, and it's, it's, to be fair, it's not just me saying that. I mean, it, no. I'm going back about six weeks when Chris Whitty said, we now have to treat this like seasonal flu. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and people die from seasonal flu every year. And of course, yeah. it's a terrible thing for those people. But we don't shut down the country because of it. And it's about whether or not the shutdown is actually placing more people at risk. Because as Ros will know, you know, this is about lives as well. Lockdown is about people losing livelihoods. It's about poverty. Yes. It's about loss of years of life because of these things. And so we, we, I think the one thing that the government and, and both governments, probably all governments around the world, have not been good at is modelling when the risk of lockdown has exceeded the risk of COVID. And we must, I think, be really close to that point. Uh, Drew Henry, Nicola Sturgeon suggested on that very point that, that you know, she, it, she's going to make the, the decision next week, but it, there's no doubt that she will extend. We will not be going to level zero in, in, on June the 28th in Scotland, as was anticipated, just as in England, they're not going to Freedom Day on, on June 21. But she said there'll be a couple of publications next week of 
it, she, she, she was reluctant to use the phrase "live with it," but that was basically what it was. It, it was it was how we cope with the continuation of this of this virus. What's your your take on this? What about this this balance between you know we cannot go on in, in constant lockdown and constant constraints. We're going to have to open up eventually. You know, either either the, the vaccine works or it doesn't. Well, I think that's why we've really got to get a good head of steam ahead of this virus in terms of getting the vaccine rolled out. One thing that's not come up in the conversation so far, although I agree with everything Roz said, is that this is a global pandemic and the virus is still out there circulating around the planet just now, quite unchecked in a number of places. So we have got to be sure that when we open things up, it's not just a matter of saying, right, we've got to where we are now, we need to make sure that those lessons have been learned. And I think they have been learned, but I think that's why Nicola Sturgeon is so cautious. I think we've got to learn those lessons that say when we open up, it's got to be done in a way that's going to not just protect us for the moment, but also protect us into the future. But Ros was making a couple of really critical points that I think um, you know, both spill over into workers and employers and into uh, those businesses. The level of support has to be there to make sure that people are able to continue to have their businesses, continue to be employed um, into the the future. And furlough should be extended for as long as it's necessary under this pandemic. And it shouldn't be tapered off as the UK government is planning to do at the moment, uh, reducing it down to 70%. They shouldn't be removing the uh, £1,000 from universal credit. And what they should be doing, we were promised £350 billion uh, to be injected into loans into the economy. Only a fifth of that has been used, Brian. There's plenty of scope there for some of that money to be transferred into grants uh, to take the pressure off businesses and uh, to allow us to do uh, even more to support them. And and finally, I would say in terms of that support, something I've been calling on for well over a year, in addition to all the things like retaining the VAT cut for longer and and furlough, etc., is to give Scotland some of these uh, minor changes we require to borrowing power so that we can do more here in Scotland as well to support okay. those businesses. Uh, you uh, know, uh, Andy, uh, then, then Alistair. Yeah, Andy, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that one thing which, in many ways, correctly, we don't focus on here is the next 50 years. And I do sometimes think that when we're talking about extensions of furlough and all that sort of stuff, we never mention the fact that our children and grandchildren are going to have to pay for it. Um, you know, this is not free. This is our money, right? We, it's our money. We, and, 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 and we have to pay it back. And the scale of borrowing, I mean, we talked about the borrowing for the banking crash 10, 12 years ago. This makes that look like pocket money. You know, the scale of money that's having to be spent on this pandemic is absolutely... Are you saying it's unaffordable, Andy? You're saying it's unaffordable? I, I, you can I'm make a financial saying, choice over. Hang on a second, a second. Yeah, Let Andy finish, yeah, and I'll bring in, I'll bring in Ross uh, and Drew. Yeah. Again, again, this is about choices. We can do things to make sure that certain outcomes happen now, but what we shouldn't do is do them pretending there aren't any consequences of that. There are okay. massive consequences of all these big decisions, and they last. They yeah. will last for decades, and our children and grandchildren will have to pick, pick up the tab. Alistair, if you can be patient for a second, Ross, you were desperate yeah, to get yeah, in and, and Drew, yeah. <laughs> Really like to come in on that because our children and grandchildren are going to have to pick up the the tab if we don't put the investment in now. Exactly. Uh, first of all, it's absolutely crucial that we are businesses would be viable in normal times. That we do everything possible to keep those businesses and keep those jobs uh, going, uh, because it's much harder to create new jobs than it is to keep the businesses that are there and give the support that business needs now. Um, I think it's really really 
you know, we need to look back at, at the amount of investment uh, that, that was put in uh, in post-war years to rebuild the economy. And we also need to look at the amount of investment that other countries are looking to put in. I mean, the, the, the scale and the ambition of the British government compared to Germany at the moment or the US at the moment is very, very low. They're not looking at putting the level of investment in that's going to be required to properly rebuild our economy. And so we really need to be asking for us to think big and be quite bold in our borrowing right now as a country in order to make sure... I'm going to bring in Andy again. I don't don't disagree. I'm just highlighting the fact that there's another side of the balance sheet here. You know, it is a balance between what you put in now and and what you account for happening in the future. I'm I'm not arguing against it. I'm arguing for um, probably a little bit longer term thinking as to what the impact is. Alistair Graham, we've had questions raised in the House of Commons about the handling of this pandemic. We've had questions raised uh, only today in in the the, the Scottish Parliament about the handling of the pandemic. We had a statement earlier in the week from the the First Minister. It's it's, that they're trying to sound upbeat. But I thought, if I may say so, the Prime Minister in particular, when he made he made the statement and announcing the the delay, it really was quite a problem for him. It's it's a problem in terms of message as well as content, isn't it? It is a problem in terms of message. And just to go back, just really briefly to something that Andy was touching on, we've had the, the kind of problems with the fan zone in Glasgow, and I think this kind of speaks into a wider issue where different sectors feel like they are being treated differently. So, for example, I think one of the most kind of glaring examples of that is in the difference in physical distancing rules. So we've got you know, the one metre rule in hospitality and bars and restaurants. And then for theatres and live entertainment, you've got a two metre distancing rule, which is just completely uh-huh. unviable for lots of, you know, unless you're getting huge subsidies, that's completely unviable for lots of venues. Um, so I think looking ahead to next week, we've obviously got, as you said, these different papers coming out. I think that paper yeah. on physical distancing will be absolutely crucial in she, determining whether Nicola or not... Sturgeon, forgive me interrupting, but Nicola Sturgeon hinted, didn't she, if you can pick up on this, that, that she might try and, what did she call it? It was it was minor matters or consequential matters or something, while keeping the broad uh, idea of, of maintaining the constraints uh, as, as they are. She did, yeah. She said uh, they basically promised to consider whether any minor changes can be made yeah. to the current levels as they are. So that would be... Or that could you know, be numbers decide, weddings or something like that. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah. Something like that. It could, it could even be something around physical distancing. Okay. Um, it could be something around... We've had problems recently with uh, nursery graduations, stuff like that. Parents really wanting to go to these transitional events in schools that are held outside, but being told that basically they can't, which when they look at just go back to the fan zone in Glasgow. You've got yes. six thousand fans a day, three thousand per session. Uh, and I've in a lost city where of the number of times I've heard that raised, people say, "If they can go to that, why can't I go to you know my, my kids' primary yeah, school?" Yeah, it's, it's, it's a city that's currently under level two restrictions, yeah. which basically means that for these outdoor seated events, you should have a maximum capacity of five hundred. So Drew, it is quite. Was a, that, was that, sorry, Drew, Drew Henry, was that was that a bit of a slip? I mean, I understand why they wanted to go ahead. They want to give people something. The argument was they're going to watch the game anyway, do it under control. But it's a bit of a, it was a bit of a PR nightmare, wasn't it? Well, you know, I'm not a clinician or a scientist, and I don't give the government advice on uh, these things. But I did listen, listen to Professor Jason Leach talking about uh, the fact that decisions have been made around sport that mean that there are uh, relaxations there that are not happening elsewhere. And he was making the point that you just can't do everything. You can't do that across uh, everything in Scotland. Aye, but what, you've, that, but what you've said well, is what you've said is basically yeah. is fundamentally unfair. Folk are not going to say, "Oh, it's fine, it's sport, it's okay." They're going to say, "I can't go to my, my my daughter's nursery graduation or kindergarten graduation or whatever it is. I can't go to this." They got. They're, they're not going to say, "Oh, fine, on you go. It's a Scotland game." They're going to say, "This is wrong for me. It's unfair, isn't it?" 
Yeah, and I think that's part of the uh, difficult choices that are being made at the moment about these different things. You know, that there are, and there have been on this podcast, different views about what relaxation should happen and what should happen yeah. in terms of what's going forward. And I think there will be different views. I think the fact is that when you're making these choices, and I'm, I'm very, very thankful I'm not in a position of having to uh, react to these personally. When you're making these choices, they must be really difficult. And I'm sure they've been all being taken with great uh, care. I'm not in the room, uh, but I'd imagine there's a lot of sleepless nights. And, uh, but you're, 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 you're a member of parliament. You're getting constituents yeah. having a go at you, no, no doubt, or raising these issues with you. Well, what, what is your own take? Was it a blunder? Was the fan zone a blunder? Uh, well, no, I don't believe it was, because I think what we'll see today, um, you know, we, we know that, you know, fans are travelling down to London just now, and there's no facility for them there uh, in place. That just means they're going to congregate uh, somewhere else, I, I think. I hope not, because they've asked yeah. not to travel if they haven't got tickets or somewhere to go to. Um, but I think it is appropriate when you know that something like that is going to happen, that you take some kind of uh, action to uh, you know, to make sure you can at least kind of contain that or manage it. And I think that's yeah. what's been done. Now, yeah, I'm sitting here talking to you from Inverness. I'm in the centre of uh, hospitality for uh, uh, for Scotland. And I know exactly what, what people are saying about this and yeah. how unfair uh, they feel it is. And I feel that as well, because these are my friends and neighbours that are being affected by this just now. Um, and that's why I think the, 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 the fact that there hasn't been enough support coming, there hasn't been enough allowance uh, from Westminster to allow us to properly support these businesses to keep furlough going has been so important. And we need some of that uh, loan money transferred into grants so that we can put that in to these businesses to make it easier for them at the moment. Uh, can I just make a, yeah, Alistair, please, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just a, just a very brief point in that. And I think I think a lot of people accept that, you know, you have to, you do have to make decisions and some things will be able to open and some things, some things won't be. But I think that the problem at the moment is, and I think I, I thought this the other day when Nicola Sturgeon stood up in Parliament and said, there will often be you know, rational explanations behind why these decisions are made. I think you have a duty to the public to lay out exactly what those rational explanations are and why those decisions have been made, why the decision has been made for theatres, for example, to be two metre distancing, but bars and restaurants to be one metre distancing. And you don't think and that's think at the moment, properly? I don't think it's, it's clear enough at the moment as to what exactly the thinking is behind that. I, I mean, personally, because I, I don't know what it is. Andy McKeever. I think this is, not a, this is not something which we do very well in this country. But I think we have to try and give politicians a bit of space to rectify yeah. little errors that they make. This is an unprecedented yeah. situation. They can't get everything that. right, OK? Um, and I think somebody like Jason Leach is actually very good at admitting where things are not quite keeping up in terms of regulation yeah. with what's going on. Yeah, but, but he's not standing for election. He can say that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> indeed. But I just I think that collectively it would be better if we, if we can give the politicians a bit of time. Couldn't agree just, more tinker where they've got things wrong. I mean, a good example at schools, I mean, I, I've, obviously got, I've got four kids in primary school, and a good example there is not actually the sports day stuff, right? Let's be fair. The sports day stuff is upsetting the parents more than it's upsetting the children. And it's a big thing. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I, would like, I would like to have gone, and I couldn't go, and I uh, thought it was wrong. Yeah. But would you take part in the dad things. digging spoon race, though? That's the thing. Well, would you uh, all, always, always take part in these things, Brian. Uh, quite right, quite um, right. But, you know, one of the things, that they've still got this, uh, what's called the bubbles policy at school. Yeah. So my children are not allowed to play with their friends during the day between nine and three, even outside, because they're in a different bubble. Even though they go to breakfast club and after school club with them in the school, sitting next to them, they can't Aye. see them between nine and three. Now, privately, when I've spoken to people, everybody knows that's wrong. 
Everybody knows it's silly. Everybody knows they have to change it. But you've got to give yeah. people space to make these mm-hmm. little changes without slapping well, U-turn or backpedal or stuff over it. I just that's I great stuff. Let me, let me bring in Ross on one uh, an area where an error was admitted. Nicola Sturgeon saying they didn't get everything right. Uh, Anna Sawar from uh, from the Scottish Labour was raising the PPE protective equipment for staff in in hospitals and and clinics and. And, and care areas. Now, there's an Audit Scotland report saying very, very close to running out. Didn't run out, but very, very close to, to running out. What, what, do you, what do you make of that from a, a sort of staff perspective? Well, it's no surprise uh, to us that that was the situation in the central stocks because we had uh, reps at that period in the pandemic. Literally, you know, we had people fighting tooth and nail to get a hold of PPE for their, yeah. their members um, throughout yeah. that initial period. And it was perfectly clear that there wasn't enough PPE. Uh, we had issues over PPE in the ambulance service. We had issues right across the care sector with PPE and quality of PPE. We had issues with different grades within our healthcare services and their access yeah. to PPE. Um, should have been. Must have been terrified by that, wouldn't they? Not. Yeah, I mean, we. I, I think it's it's hard to overstate the fear. You know, we talk about key workers going out and how they're all heroes and everything, but you know, th- this has been a really traumatizing experience for thousands of frontline public sector workers. And I'm very sad to say that actually, low pay across these workforces have been most essential in looking after the rest of us is endemic and. The, the amount of, you know, the quality of PPE training and a whole range of other things sometimes is very low due to the fact that our public services have been run down with austerity over many years. So we've got key lessons to learn uh, from this pandemic. And one of them is that bad work kills and, and you know, that we need to put wow. enough investment into areas where we have frontline workers no, who are essential no, workers yeah. to be able to carry out their jobs effectively and safely. Enough and people have died. Thousands of unnecessary lives have been lost. That's where I probably disagree with Andy um, in terms of how our governments have handled this. No, it's not good enough. There should have been contingencies. There was reports that warned them what they needed to do and the stockpiles they needed to have. That didn't get carried out. And we we should have a a situation where, as a country, we actually anticipate these things. it's not been good enough and we shouldn't accept that thousands of lives have been lost unnecessarily because of bad decisions that have been made by our governments throughout this pandemic. Drew Henry, the Nicholas Sturgeon, in responding to the question of Anna Sawar, said, said two things, pointed out the Audit Scotland report generally had praised uh, government efforts and government endeavour and said that, that, that everything had been done or, uh, as much as been done as possible. They actually didn't run out of PPE. They came close on occasion, but they, they managed not to. And, and But she conceded not everything had been got right. In terms of planning, she said that perhaps they had prepared for a flu pandemic rather than the one... That emerged, prepared for the prepared for the wrong war, if you like. But those are remarkable statements by Ros Ros Foyer. People have died as a consequence of government actions. What do you make of that? Well, you know, I think that Nicholas Sturgeon's absolutely right that lessons do have to be learned. I'm sure they've been learned, and uh, they continue to learn from them. But one of the things uh, I think that came out, uh, you know, quite clearly was that there was PPE here, but it was difficult to get it out to everybody in the time that there were. Uh, you know, risks and the fact that PPE wasn't manufactured here. It now yeah. is manufactured in Scotland yes. so that we can respond First to made that point. Better, yeah. better to these uh, kinds of things. But look, you know, frontline workers were on the front line literally during uh, this. And yeah. uh, they were exposed to, uh, uh, you know, to, to risk because, they, because by virtue of the fact that they were dealing 
in in our hospitals and with with people who were uh, who were uh, suffering from the this dreadful uh, virus. Um, and I think, like I say, the, the the important thing in terms of learning lessons now yeah. is that we move as quickly as we can to a full public inquiry across all four nations. Okay. Not batting off, not batting off for years, but a full public inquiry across all four nations very, very quickly so that we can get to the bottom of the lessons that we can learn across the whole of the nations of the UK and make sure that we've got the preparations in place to ensure that we can cope with things like this much, much better when they arise in the future. Uh, Andy McKeever, I saw you nodding, nodding stage sagely throughout that. It's, it's not an easy one, this one, is it? Because it was at the very the early stages of the of the pandemic, but but it does appear to really still be raising anxieties and concerns. Yeah, and 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 so it should. I mean, there's no question about that. I think my my wife's a doctor, so uh, you know I've got a little bit of mm-hmm. personal knowledge of what went on, and I you know I think that um, we have to take silver linings from clouds. In my view, I think that there's no question that at the start of this, you, we can look back and see our governments did not perform well based on international evidence. Um, towards the end, with the vaccine rollout program, we can clearly say the opposite. Uh, I'm not saying it balances out, it doesn't, right? But you save lives with a better vaccine program and you maybe cost lives with a poorer, a poorer start to it. That, and, and, uh-huh. and I agree with all that. I do think the critical thing is that we do have an inquiry that looks at everything. Because I know from my own personal experience, as I say, having a, a, my wife who's a doctor, there are many, uh, the, the NHS works in a very different way than most other developed health services around the world and in a totally different way than European health services. And there are some aspects of that which were a big benefit in this. Yeah. And there were a lot of aspects also that were a big disbenefit in this. And I, I would like to, uh, I, I hope that the inquiry doesn't miss anything because it okay. feels that it has to avoid certain topics. I think it should be very, very thorough so that we make sure that, that if this happens again, and let's face it, we have to prepare that it will happen again, yeah. that we get it right at the start. Rose on, Rose, on that very thing, good questioning from Kathinka uh, 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 Mume saying, how do we ensure this doesn't happen again and that it isn't the low-paid hospitality staff that suffer. Again, she's concerned about, about that, that sector too. Well, I think that on the the issues that hospitality staff have faced, there's no doubt that the hospitality sector uh, is a sector that's suffered more than most uh, in this and the staff have suffered very badly because you've got to think about it was the lucky ones that were placed on furlough and, and yeah. not just let go. And those lucky ones uh, when when the sector was closed were living on you know, 80% of minimum wage levels. Yeah. And that's a very hard ask to be surviving on, you know, not even uh, the minimum not wage. Not the minimum wage, yeah. yeah. Yes, okay. uh, you know, for quite prolonged periods of time. Um, I mean, there's what we must do is try and learn the lessons uh, of this. And there's no doubt that we need to think about uh, raising standards of employment. And I'll go back again to the, the point I made earlier on around sick pay, you know, things like that are a real problem when a worker has to choose between doing the right thing and isolating if they have symptoms or not having enough money to feed their family they're going to go to work in order to go to work Rose is absolutely uh, right about that issue of our, uh, sick pay. And, and one of the missed opportunities during this whole pandemic, one of the silver linings we could have uh, found if, if, they'd been, if it'd been received by the Chancellor was the, the, for us to uh, try out the opportunity of a universal basic income, which would have protected all the hospitality workers and everybody else during okay. uh, this time. And I don't believe that when we look back in the scale of the cost of this, it would have been 
out with our ability to actually put that in place. And I think this, there is still room for us to look at that for the future to make sure that okay. nobody's left behind. We'll talk about that in a future programme, a big, a big topic. But what, Alistair Grant, one, one issue as well that was raised uh, at, at questions uh, to, to, the, to the First Minister during her statement as well as today, uh, the idea of, of travel bans, you know, aviation travel bans. Nicola Sturgeon is saying basically, basically if Scotland had the power to do it, she would have had far tighter ones than, than the UK. Now, I understand the pressure that was on the UK government from the travel industry and from, you know, backbench conservative MPs. And, and now, they're, now they're talking about, you know, ways perhaps of validating international travel. This is still a source of concern, isn't it, Alistair? It's still a source of concern. It's been a source of concern, as you say, a kind of ongoing issue for for months. Um, so I think one of the things that Nicola Sturgeon said during her coronavirus update in Holyrood uh, on Tuesday was essentially... Um, she kind of blamed what she called the lax UK border controls effectively yeah. for the rise of the Delta variant um, that was obviously kind of originated in India, or was first identified in India. Um, and she essentially said that the Scottish government wanted to introduce a kind of mandatory managed quarantine for everyone coming back from the UK, regardless of what country they're returning from, which would yeah. obviously have included India, whereas the UK government has obviously gone for this traffic light system. Uh, and there was concerns that they took too long to move India to the red list and allowed the, the Delta variant to, to enter the UK and to become kind of seeded. Um, and this is an ongoing issue. And I suppose there's a lot of, uh, a lot of experts, um, yeah. a lot of um, public health officials that have raised this repeatedly. Um, you look at other countries that have managed to kind of control their borders much more effectively. Yeah. Uh, and it does, you know, make sense in the sense that if new variants are going to enter the UK, they're, they're going to enter yeah. it from, primarily from overseas travel. Um, and, but I suppose and, one of the other issues is that yeah, the, on, yeah. the travel industry and the, the airlines yes. are are devastated at the moment, and there's there's a lot of pressure to, to kind of allow and people to go abroad where that's possible. And there's talk of legal action. Andy, does this come down to your balance again? It's this question of the balance. At what at what point you know you you, you want to contain the virus, you have a complete and total lockdown, and nobody's allowed to go anywhere, and that's not feasible. This comes down comes down to your question of balance, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. This all goes back actually to the question of elimination versus suppression. Um, it goes back to New Zealand and the New Zealand model of effectively closing off the country completely to everything. Um, I was never in favour of elimination as a strategy. I always thought it was the wrong strategy because I felt that if you look, if you try and look in the longer term at what New Zealand were doing, it presumes global vaccination. Um, and global vaccination is either impossible or so, so, so far away that you cannot credibly close your country for that for that long. So you think the, again, Australia, the, the Australia New Zealand close down might not work because they're going to have to wait until everybody else catches up on vaccination, unless they loosen it. Yeah, because yeah. when are you know when do you have a situation where uh, all the countries that are effectively on the list to receive Covax, when, when does that happen? When do they get to the point where they? I mean, and we're still very 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 far away from that. And again, it is the balance. How much damage is being done to the New Zealand economy? by this sustained closure. And the damage done to the economy means less tax, less money for public services, more people on unemployment, more people in poverty, more death. So again, it is all this balance. But you see, the difficult thing is, if you're a, if you're a politician, this is hard because you are making a choice, effectively yes. a horrible choice between the deaths that are right in front of yes. you and the deaths that are decades away. And yes. inevitably, it's really, really easy to choose the first one and it's really hard to choose the last one. Ross Foyer, what, what what do you make of that of that that the, the the approach being taken, the idea of controlling travel and controlling transport? 
I think in the the short term, there there are certainly currently, given where we are with uh, vaccines, uh, arguments for continuing to have heightened travel restrictions. And I think there's a lot to be said for what the First Minister you know, uh, put down as the cause to the fact that we could be facing a, 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 another spike with a more uh, vigorous variant. But uh, that said, I think longer term, we do have to realise that, you know, we have a huge aviation sector, we have a huge yeah. travel sector, and that, that Britain as a country and as an economy is a, is a global, you know, it's interlinked to the, the global economy uh, Long-term shutting down your borders globally is not an answer, but maybe what we need to be doing as countries is, you know, really, really getting serious about the need to look at a global vaccination programme because Uh my concern is that until we really bite the bullet on that and get to grips with that and realise... And and not just the vaccines, but the infrastructure to distribute those vaccines in in sub-Saharan Africa, for example. Drew Drew Henry, you you and your colleagues in the Commons were raising this week another issue regarding... uh, uh, trade and connections with the Antipodes, but it, you, you weren't exactly delighted about that either, was it? It was the Australian trade deal. Well, I think this has, uh, you know, been a, a, a massive blow to uh, the the farming and crofting industry in Scotland. They, they've been absolutely devastated that they've been locked out of consultation over this uh, deal. Basically, it's going to allow uh, Australian uh, products, uh, sheep, uh, lamb, and uh, beef products into the UK. Uh, products that, uh, and you've got to remember that Australian farming still uses, uh, allowed to use hormone injection in beef. Uh, they're allowed to mule sheep, um, mules sheep, I should say. Uh, they, they can transport live animals for 40 hours without food and water. Um, and they're still using antibiotics and uh, so forth in the production of their, their food. All this is going to come in and uh, it risks seriously undercutting our, our farming industry. 14 of Scotland's food and drink. Uh, bodies wrote uh, to Liz Truss, the Secretary of State for Trade, uh, to decry this the way this has been handled. And uh, I, you know, I think there's more to come from this. Uh, the, the benefits from it. Yeah. Well, just before that, if I could just point yeah, out the please, benefits please, yeah. from this. The benefits from this would take 15 years to get one two hundredth of the loss that we've made from losing the EU market. So this is a tiny deal with devastating consequences for future. Uh, actions in terms of farming. Alistair Grant, the, the UK government prime minister, says it's up to our business. He talks he talks about the opportunities for whiskey, and of course, with the, they have the, the, delighted to announce the the uh, uh, further suspension of the of the of the, the, the additional tariff tariffs on trade with America. But in terms of Australia, he says there are opportunities for UK firms, doesn't that's what the prime minister says, Alistair. He does, yeah. And I think uh, the UK government would also make the point that they've got this kind of transition period, this kind of fifteen year period, and that. They put measures in place to, you know, stop the country being, I guess you'd say, the market being flooded by Australian beef and lamb. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as Drew says, this is something that the farming sector is extremely concerned about for the, the, the perceived different standards between the UK and Australia when it comes to these products and the impact on particularly maybe kind of smaller Scottish farmers um, that would have to compete with these uh, much, much bigger Australian farms. Uh, and I thought it was interesting today in Holyrood uh, during First Minister's questions that Nicola oh. Sturgeon was essentially saying there should be a vote in the House of Commons over this, and but also a vote in Holyrood, yeah. Uh, yeah, because it's something that is affecting Scotland. Uh, and she says the Scottish Parliament should have a say on it. Andy, what's your take? Are we getting to to exercise too early, or or, or is this a real threat? This is what free trade is. 
Yeah. Um, and I, I, I mean, I, I will any day of the week talk up for free trade. I think free trade is the best way to lift people out of poverty the world has ever seen. Um, but free trade has consequences. Um, and I, I wouldn't play those consequences down in this case. I think the consequences for farmers here could be quite significant. Not necessarily Probably. just in isolation from the Australian deal, yes. but from other free trade deals that will inevitably be announced in the future, because this will open up a whole Asia-Pacific free trade deal thing. Now, I would emphasize that I'm not against it, I do, but I do think the consequences are quite profound. For me, this goes back to the CAP. Um, yeah. You know, agriculture in this country is incredibly heavily subsidized, and, and you can debate the rights and wrongs of that, but ultimately I, my view is that you know, no EU policy has been as immoral over the years as the CAP. The CAP has kept Africans poor more than almost anything else that could possibly have been uh -huh. created by the rich world. By preventing their access to our market. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, this is a hangover of the CAP. You know, we, we, have, we have become used to massive subsidies, and this is what happens when they go away. To Henry, briefly, I guess you would say it's free trade, but free and equal trade is what you would want. Well, you, just to give you an example, everybody's delighted to sell more whiskey into Australia, but costs of goods uh, for the whiskey industry, for distillers, um, have gone up by 20% since the 1st of January because of uh, Brexit and the massive amount of trade they've lost to the EU. This can't even touch the sides uh, of what's uh, affecting them there. And the other, the other important part, just to, on this, Brian, is that yes, this undermines food security because if farmers and crofts go out of business, um, then that means that we'll have to import more and more. And that's a very, very dangerous long-term effect. Ross, briefly, what's your take on this? Good, good thing, bad thing? Yeah, well, I think for me, it's the lack of transparency in how these deals are negotiated. The UK government clearly feels under real pressure to come up with, you know, pull lots of trade deals out the bag. And the, the lack of scrutiny in what's in or not in those deals is huge issue of concern and you know ob for obvious reasons my key concern would be workers rights yes. in all of this as well as things like food okay. standards safety and and a whole range of other concerns but it's all getting done behind closed doors and we're getting told about it once the deal's done that's not good enough not good enough folks i'm going to call that to a halt but we've got one more topic i i really i i, I really hesitate to, to raise this that apparently there's a football tournament going on i know i know <laughs> And and we, we came close in, in the first game. You know, they, they scored a quite a good goal and then, and then a ludicrous goal against us. And we've got well, we've got another team that Scotland are playing uh, on on Friday. It's the, the, we're the famous Tartan Army, and and some of us or a few of us are off to off to Wembley. What what what, what how how can we how can we keep this going? How Alistair, how 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 can we ginger our spirits up? I mean, obviously by, by scoring more goals than England. Don't say that, but but <laughs> don't get that. We, we want that to happen. How can we get all cheered up by this, Alistair? Uh, I suppose I've got, I've got to lay my cards on the table and say that I'm not, I don't follow football. I'm not a, not a huge <laughs> football fan. But, uh, I, obviously, I, I watched the, watch the, the Czech Republic game. I'll definitely be watching at eight o'clock tomorrow night. Uh, I'm not naive to the kind of the, the history of this, of this fixture um, and what it means in terms of uh, the game and the kind of history behind it. But uh, in terms of giving advice or predictions, I'm probably, I'm probably not the guy to ask. Do, do, do which sport do you follow rugby or you you, you follow hockey or, or I, I'm hockey? just not I don't, I don't really 
This is making me sound really boring, but I don't really follow any of them, really. <laughs> no, no, perfectly reasonable. Darts, snooker. No, no, no. It's, I'm, I'm going to go up at that point. Ross, Ross, would it would it boost the nation hugely, or or are we do we do we invest too much in 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 football? Is is that possibly 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 a failing of the Scots males in particular, but Scots some Scots females as well? Well, I was just going to suggest that maybe we should send down the women's team because they have uh, yeah, a yeah. track record in international tournaments. But yeah. um, no, I think it's. I mean, it's obviously something that does deeply uh, seem to be part of our our psyche, uh, and you know, I, I, there's a huge amount invested in it. And let's just hope that we don't end up with another glorious defeat. I would like to see. Uh, a chink of light for allow allow all our Scottish men to put their heads up a little bit higher. Eh? You're you're right about the glorious defeats. When we go out, we go out on goal difference or something oh. stupid like that. You know, we 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 beat Holland and 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 you know draw with Iran. Wasn't it? Wasn't it? That was that was one of them. That was Argentina. Yeah. It's always it's always a it's, it's defeat, but it's always glorious. You know, we score a wonderful. That what was it that Jimmy Hill called it a topoke goal by Andy Neri against Brazil, and then yeah. it just annoyed I, me. I was actually in. In Paris in 1998, oh, when wonderful. Brazil, uh, and I was in the fan zone there. I didn't make it into the stadium for that game, wow. but wow. Uh, the point at which I think we were uh, were we drawing with Brazil for about 20 minutes. I think uh, that's probably the, the best thing that happened to Scotland yeah. and football team in the last. I was. I was. Years. The fans were. <laughs> I, was co- I was covering the European summit in Cardiff and I was commentating live on the sheep meat premium or some blasted thing. And I had I was watching the game, of course, had the sound turned down and I was getting away with it. But the, the, the news night ne- were next door. And then as now they had a large Scots contingent and, and Scotland hit the bar against Brazil. And some guy from Newsnight shouted, oh, yeah. Blank, 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 dancer. And this one, here. And I said, guys, guys, you know, what are you doing? He said, oh, you should have seen it, but I said, I did see it, but I managed to keep quiet. And Andy, are, are we going to get bolstered up by, by Friday? Well, this is gloomy. I'm no. going him. <laughs> Go on, Andy. It is, it is, I mean, look, the, the, the first thing in our favour is history because Scotland ah. don't tend to go out after just the second game. Scotland tend to leave us on tenterhooks until the end before we make a hash of it. So, you know, that is... is, And and really, a draw tomorrow night keeps Scotland pretty much in the tournament. In fact, a loss potentially keeps them in, but we'll not deal with that just now. So a draw keeps them in. Um, This is not the best Scotland team there has been, but there's also been worse, to be honest, over the last 10 or 15 years. And it's also not the best England team. Um, there's a couple of particularly good England really? players, but they're not gelling all that well. You think that to hear some of the commentators, um, but go on, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, I know, but I mean, I, 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 we actually share a lot in common with England when it comes to football, because England uh, are um, a, a significantly underperforming nation yeah, on the world yeah. stage in football. They have so many incredible players, but they never, ever gel as well as a team. Listen, as Andy, we are, be- we are so better than they are underperforming. We are better. We are better we underperforming. Are. We are. There, there is a, I, think, I think there's a chance of taking a point out of tomorrow night, getting a draw tomorrow night, and then needing to beat Croatia and you know, probably losing a last-minute yeah. goal to Croatia to or something game. like that. But I think True. there's a chance tomorrow night of, of taking enough. Drew, cheer us up. Cheer us up. What's going to happen? Well, you, I think this time we'll either go through on points or on goal difference. I don't think Ooh. we're going to go out this time. So I'm, I'm, I know you're a Dundee United fan, uh, Brian. I'm a Hearts fan. So we, we know that when you, you hit the downtimes, that just makes uh, the victories and the successes that uh, You're trying to keep us out of the Premier League as well. <laughs> I, don't, 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 but, don't, think we'll, but, don't think we'll forget that. Uh, but, I, but I think you... I, 
I think you guys succeeded in keeping us out. But, uh, but anyway, <laughs> but anyway, I think the I think the lesson from that is that you, if you get knocked down, you pick yourself up again, you go again, and I think that's what we'll do tomorrow night. Well, there you are. Drew Henry's upbeat. Andy McKeever thinks we'll, we'll, we'll leave it to the last game to get beat. Ross Fire thinks that we should maybe just cool down and send send the women and ask the grant couldn't care less whatever happened. <laughs> so my final thank you very, very much indeed. It was absolutely fabulous. Thanks very much for joining me. Thanks to everybody who's listening either live or on the, the recorded version. From me, Brian Taylor, to the This podcast was brought to you by The Herald. Take 20% off an annual subscription to The Herald with our exclusive podcast code. Just add Herald Pod 2021 to your basket and get instant unfiltered access to our website. And you can also get involved with the Brian Taylor podcast as well. Tune in on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube every Thursday afternoon to catch Brian and his panel chat live and ask your questions to the people across the political scene. 